Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the Antler Up podcast brought to you by Tethered, the world's best saddle hunting equipment. And we have a fun show for you all today. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to this week's episode of the Antler Up Podcast. We're on episode 197, and on this week's episode, I was joined by co-host of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast, Jacob Myers. Jacob and Andrew run a phenomenal show, and I always have a great time when I have the ability to catch up with Jacob. This was a great time to have him on because we discussed some rut hunting information and breaking down some hunts and a whole lot more. This episode is packed with deer hunting stories and tactics that will help you out in the heat of the moment during the rut. Like the title says, Jacob shares why you shouldn't hold back this rut. Get out there and get after it. We begin this episode by hearing Jacob share what is new with him and the podcast, and he explains his passion for creating the content that he does. We discuss what is on the docket for this season, takeaways from some recent podcasts, preparing himself mentally and physically for the rut. And Jacob also shares his thoughts on reading sign and when to push the envelope when setting up. Be sure to check Jacob out and Andrew out over on their YouTube channel and podcast every week over on this Southern Outdoorsman podcast and YouTube channel. Enjoy this fun episode. It's always a great time to hear Jacob talk. Dude has so much passion. I have a lot of respect for him. So definitely give it a listen and enjoy. Best of luck to everybody out there. Antler up. All right, everybody, real quick before we get into this episode. So up to this point, I'm recording this a couple days ahead of some some big time hunts coming up that I have. As I say big time, I'm talking the time frame. And up to this point, been really happy with how the season has gone. Just want to just touch upon that, let you know what's going on for me just really briefly. So I've tried to strategize when I hunt instead of I'm, I want to hunt smarter, not harder. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is really pick my time, spend more time with the family a little bit. And you know what? It's starting to pay off this year so far, have three does in the freezer, really fun, exciting hunts. Got my first one on, on film as well. So if you haven't already done so go check that one out, drop a comment, subscribe, like it, uh, really helps me out with, with all that. And, you know, obviously I'm going to have some more videos. I'm going to try to have more videos out, especially when it comes to gear and other things like that, but really means a lot to, to me with all the support and the kind messages and the comments and on the, on our YouTube, but also on Instagram really means a lot. And that's why I do what I do because I'd love getting a chance to, to bring that out to you and meet new people and, and have the chance to, we all could just get better as individuals and, and as hunters. So, you know, with that, 
Uh, next week, we'll be dropping an episode with Jake Hofer over from the Exodus Outdoor Podcast and everything. And, you know, they have some really cool, exciting news coming out right now because they are launching something called the Exodus Vault. It's a place to lock in significant savings on their website over on ExodusOutdoorGear.com. And it's going to feature one of their best products and one that I've been running for the last couple of years. And I have two of them. And that is the Render, which is their flagship uh, customer favorite, really cell camera, which you're going to be able to save $95 on this. Now, the thing with, with the vault is no additional coupons could be used because once they're gone, like this item's gone, they're going to be coming out with something new uh, along those lines. So, but to show your support for the podcast, just go ahead and put antler up in there uh, or AU even uh, if you go ahead and purchase one of these renders, or also they're going to have arrows or the memory card holder just things that are going to be low stock and they're not planning on replacing. But I want to tell you something really quick about the render. This thing has been flawless for me over the last three three years that I've used it. And like I said, I have two of them total. I have two rivals. Uh, and man, it's funny. My dad just told me the other day of an, another trail cam company. Uh, we've had these uh, cell cameras up on our private mountain for the last couple of years. And right now to the, it's to the point we can't even see uh, if it is a buck other than just antlers. You can't really tell the difference of it's, if it's at a spike, is it an eight point, is it a 10 point? We have no clue. We can't tell. But with my renders and my rival on the same locations, we could see clear as day during the day, during the night, they work flawlessly. Uh, so five year warranty, theft and for damage warranty, it's really been a favor for thousands of enthusiasts out there as far as hunters go. So you got flexible data plans, unlimited Im images, no glow flash. The render will provide critical real-time data. Uh, and also, you know, right now I know scrape week is kind of on the, on the outs, but you still need it for that Intel. And if you uh, are able to leave them out all year round, can't go wrong. Awesome video, awesome images. So check out the Exodus vault over on exodusoutdoorgear.com. So again, enjoy this fun episode with Jacob. Hope you are staying safe out there. Have fun hunting, get it done. Antler up. Tethered is a team of saddle hunting fanatics with a passionate addiction to whitetail hunting. Designing and engineering products to be a more efficient and confident hunter Tether produces the most mobile, stealthy, and safest elevated hunting gear on the planet. Built by saddle hunters for the saddle hunter. Head over to tethernation.com to see for yourself what exactly I'm talking about. America's Best Bowstrings has been manufacturing high-quality custom bowstrings in the USA since 2006. America's Best Bowstring strives on the commitment to never end the search for perfection, and this has been the driving force behind the company. Innovative products for every archer out there. Go create a custom set today at americasbestbowstrings.com. And a special code is made for our listeners of the Antler Up podcast for America's Best Bowstrings. Use code ANTLERUP and you will save $10 off your order. Spartan Forge stands at the nexus of machine learning and whitetail deer hunting to deliver truly intuitive and science-based products that saves the hunter time spent scouting, planning, and executing their hunts. You have deer prediction, journaling, and the best maps on any hunting app platform there is. Use code ANTLERUP to save 20% off your Spartan Forge membership at spartanforge.ai. 
I like it. So here we go, everybody. Welcome back to this week's episode of the Antler Up podcast. I'm joined by one of the hosts of the Southern Outdoorsman Hunting Podcast, Mr. Jacob Myers. Jacob, welcome to the show, man. It's a pleasure to have you back on. Yeah, appreciate it. It's been a long time coming, Jeremy, but a lot's changed since then, dude. Yeah. Your show's grown, our show's grown, so many things have happened, man, and look, we're all still here, dude, so we're having a good time. Yeah, dude, I, like we just said earlier, we, we BS for about 19 minutes now. We had a blast doing that, and I look back, it was episode 37, and man, one of the highest downloaded episodes I ever did before, our, you know, even we went over to uh, Dan Johnson and, and that uh, that world of the sportsman's empire and everything like that. So it just was so cool to see how continuously that episode continued to grow even before, uh, you know, just people looking you up, I guess. And that was a really fun conversation, which I'm sure we, we could even adapt to some of the things that we've talked about on that one. But, you know, I guess you're saying some things have grown and things are going on with you guys. So for this, the Northeastern individuals, the the PAs, the Michigans, the New York, the guys that are living under a rock and, you know, obviously maybe I'm sure I've had to have heard from you, but those not man, what, or ha- already have, what's been new for you and the guys uh, with your podcast that you've got going on? Yeah. So since the last time being on here, uh, I've been now full time with our show since November of 2021. So that's a pretty awesome deal, uh, to say the least, you know, do something that you truly love. Um, but also just with that, probably like you, you know, as a host of one of these shows, when you interview very successful hunters, much more successful than you myself, yep. you, you learn so much from those individuals and you're able to actually go out there and apply it and, and seeing like, how things year or year pay off. So we're at the five and a half year mark right now on our show coming up on six years in February. And in the matter of that last five and a half years, how much more knowledge that, you know, myself has my co-host Andrew has, and then also all of our listeners, cause we're all learning together when you're interviewing these super successful hunters, specifically in our region of the country, the Southeast, and you're able to go out there and apply and, and build like a, a deeper knowledge base than, you know, any of us probably could have ever done, you know, by ourselves. So it really shows the the power of these podcasts and what someone can really take away from if you're truly taking notes, you know, going out and applying it and also putting the pieces together and always asking yourself why I was going to start the podcast off with this. And what I mean by asking yourself why is why are you not having success or why are you having success in these situations? If you're not seeing deer, you need to ask yourself why, what am I doing that's possibly causing me not to have the success of even having an observation of a deer, let alone be able to kill one, especially a buck. And the more throughout the years we've done that, the more success we've had, the more success our listeners have had. And it's been very impactful of like just how asking why can add so much more value to somebody than just going out there, beating your head up against the tree, <laughs> not knowing why you're not being successful. And of course, if you ask yourself why, you'll start getting to uncovering what the problem is and really making yourself a lot more successful in the long run. Yeah, Dude, it's so funny you say that because a couple weeks ago, Chad Sylvester, the Exodus Outdoor Guys, their podcast, they interviewed me for uh, maybe some a little bit of snippets that they'll be putting out here through the course of the year. And they asked me, what do some of these really amazing, successful deer hunters have in common, right? And I I went to that. I, I said, you know, I think the most generic but very most relatable and the correct answer is these guys really ask the question, why? But to build on that, I said, not only are these individuals asking why they're so really just incredible at adapting and making that calculated move, whether, like you said, either they are successful with filling a tag or 
successful being in in the game basically right and not just being total you know full bore like why am i not seeing seeing deer so the question why with that and then also being able to adapt i think those two things seamlessly work together and, and the really diehard and the really great hunters out there are doing those two things extremely well absolutely it is one of those things that man it really clicks with you after you start doing that like you know we'll have guests or we'll have listeners ride in talking about like how they've struggled applying different tactics from different guests. And when you start asking them, them question, those questions of like, well, why are you doing, why do you think you're not seeing this success? And you start asking just a bunch of why questions, they start kind of coming to realization of potentially what are they doing wrong? Because you might be thinking you're doing everything right, but if your access is terrible getting into a spot, especially like on a morning hunt, you're not going to probably see any deer. Right. Uh, or if you're in a really good spot and you have a really good observation, say in the afternoon, you know, sit, and you get out and you make a ton of noise, you leave a ton of ground scent in an area that's really hard to hunt, you go back in there, you might not have another opportunity. Um, and, and there's so many other factors of why the word why is so impactful for, for people. And it's really been impactful for myself, all the listeners and everybody else, and just applying that to what you're doing. And, and really don't just try something for a couple weeks. You know, you hear something on one of these podcasts and you're like, man, I'm going to go out and do it. And you try it for two or three hunts. You're like, man, it doesn't work for me. This doesn't work. <laughs> well, there's a bunch of factors here that could be happening. You know, truly, you know, it's hard to go apply something that someone's been doing for decades and you're the first time you're ever going out there. You've never done this before and you're going to go try and do it. Um, and that's one big factor. Another factor is when you're trying something new for the first time, you don't have the confidence in it. Like these guests have been doing again for a longer period of time. So all that kind of plays into a factor because if you just try something once or twice, you don't see success with it. And you're constantly trying doing different tactics. You're going to constantly bounce around, never having confidence in anything that you're doing. And you're going to truly struggle. And that's one thing that's happened to me over the last few years is I have very specific things that I now do that I feel very confident at. And it may take me, you know, if we do an out of state trip and, you know, go to a different state and I might have five days to hunt, it may take me a couple of days in order to kind of find the deer. But once we find them, having the confidence of how I go about sitting up on those deer to give you the best opportunities has really paid off big time. Yeah. That's awesome, dude. Well, kind of the rewind and go not squirrel, but when I told you about the hunt that I already was on, dude, that was a two dayer. Like I came home late that night after that encounter. And, and so, you know, like you said, it, it, it's amazing when you start to apply things and, and ask yourself why, man, that has been one of the biggest improvements. I think, Heck, even for me over the last year and a half, right? It almost took me like a year and a half to finally beat myself up, go through some a couple walls basically and smash my head through things until it finally sunk in a little bit. And things have been clicking ever since then. And and obviously told you a really cool story with the encounter that I had. But, you know, you're just saying about the question why. Man, I, I have to ask this because I've been trying to open up episodes. I, I say this now with the guests a couple of times just random questions, man, you know, just kind of off topic a little bit than, than just getting into the tactics and all that stuff. But this one's a really good one being that you already said that you're doing this full time. Now you're, you're you know, ex excelling, having a blast. And again, just always watching you from a few years ago, doing your channel when you'd go to ATA shows, just doing a really good job of putting information out there, no matter what it was. And I really respect that. It's, it's meaningful. It's great things. So why do you do what you do? Oh, dude, that's an interesting question. So it's changed now from what it used to be early on. It was truly it had nothing to do with the listeners. It was like, I want to learn how to become a better deer hunter. 
Okay. And by doing that, I'm able to interview people that maybe I didn't have a chance to talk to previously if I didn't have a podcast, because they probably wouldn't want to talk to a random guy off social <laughs> media for an hour and a half to really pick their brains. So it went from like what I wanted to kind of get out of it to now seeing the hundreds of listener success stories that we have coming in every single season from, I mean, tons of listeners. That's what really drives me. It's like when I interview somebody, I'm like, okay, maybe it's something that I can't necessarily apply to just based off regional wise, you know, the habitat train difference to maybe, you know, what they hunt compared to what I hunt when it comes to guests. But I know there's ever how many thousands of listeners out there that can then take that information and potentially make it their best season ever by applying what this person talks about. And that's really what drives me now is like when we get those listener success stories that come in and I get to read the story, we get to publish the story and kind of pick the listener's brain of what's really helped them be successful by what they've taken away from the show gets me so much more excited about producing the show than even just trying to make myself a more better deer hunter, which I am still trying to learn, trying to become better, more consistent as well. But it's really exciting when you get these younger guys or these guys that maybe have been hunting for 30 or 40 years, but they haven't really had the repeatable success Here's something they on a show from somebody else. You know, they're humble enough to go and apply it. And then when they have this, the success, they ride in like, dude, I'm 55 years old, been hunting for 35, 40 years. And I just had my best season ever after applying these specific tactics from this specific guest. And now it's completely changed my perspective, you know, on whitetail hunting. Take the guesswork out of building your own arrows for this upcoming season by ordering a custom set of arrows from Exodus Outdoor Gear. They have developed and sourced literally the most precise archery components on earth to build a tailored arrow for your hunting adventures. Just head over to Exodus's website and plug in your specifications in the arrow builder and have your custom set sent straight to your door. You have two arrows to choose from, one being the MMT arrow, which is a 246 diameter shaft, and the new NIS, which is a 204 diameter shaft arrow. Use code AU to save 15% off your tailored arrow order at exodusoutdoorgear.com. Yeah, that's awesome, dude. And, and you know, the one aspect that I do want to get into is one of your recent guests because I want to hear some of the things that you really take away uh, from, from that. And that is the one that you just did with Rick Hope. Uh, th- that was a pretty awesome episode. And I still have to, I didn't get a chance to finish it completely just yet. However, I know seeing... That's the one thing, again, you do a really good job of like posting on certain uh, Facebook groups and, and other media outlets where you talk about things as, as you give some details. It seemed like this was a guest that you've been really wanting to get on the show for quite some time. You finally got him on. Um, so what were some of those key, like your cliff notes? So those that haven't been able to listen to this one, I highly encourage you to go back. I feel like this is one we you could apply to a bunch of different areas. It's not just that Southeast region. So what, you know, what were some of your key takeaways from this specific episode from someone that, you know, like I said, you've been trying to get on or been wanting to have on the show for a long time. So I guess you could even dive into how long you've, you've been wanting that and, and go into the episode a little bit. Yeah. So Rick Cope, which is episode 510 of the Southern Outdoorsman, uh, Southern Outdoorsman podcast, that took two years to actually come about. So I learned about him from my actual uh, listener had written in by man, um, this guy, he's my pastor at my local church. He's an unbelievable deer hunter. You ought to get him on the podcast. And I try to do some research, you know, through social media and I couldn't find out much about him until somehow the listener might have sent me or actually I might have messaged uh, Rick on uh, Facebook and he told me he had the seminar coming out that he was going to do at the church uh, for a bunch of his uh, parishioners that wanted to come. And he just wanted to kind of share what he knew. I sat through digitally through his seminar online and it blew my mind, blew my mind. And this guy, he's from South Carolina. 
he's a big feed tree hunter, loves hunting oaks. Uh, you know, when acorns drop and that's like his go-to and he was talking at such a high level on features. And we've interviewed some of the best feed tree hunters. I personally think in the Southeast uh, that we've had on the show. And he was up there, if not even higher, I guess, white tail IQ than a lot of guys that we've had on the podcast. Um, and I was like, dude, I've got to get this guy on the podcast. And it just took so long by the time I kind of learned about him and we were talking, it was already getting out of that phase of the season, kind of that early season up until like a mid season. And we were kind of getting to like December time period. And I'm like, man, I'm just going to save you. You know, we'll, we'll kind of get together next year. And next year came through and it actually sounds terrible, but I was so busy lining up so many different guests. I couldn't, I almost, I almost kind of forgot about Rick. Yeah, And then it happened by happenstance, someone else reached back out, like me and you got to get this guy back on. We were able to reconnect and he's a very, very busy guy. He travels all around the world, um, you know, doing what he does a, a, as a pastor and he's hard to get a hold of, extremely hard to get a hold of, but finally we were able to line it up. And I, uh, within the first 10 minutes of the podcast, I'm like, dude, this might be one of our top podcast <laughs> episodes we've ever done. And we've had people, you know, listeners write in saying that was a top three episode of all time for our show. Um, but, you know, some of the bigger takeaways that he talked about, in, in my opinion, was the difference between the average deer hunter who, like, knows of feed trees, like, knows, like, how you can kill deer on oak trees or, you know, soft mass. If you have soft mass where you're at in the country, but how to go about scouting for it and when to go about hunting it and also for targeting bucks and mature bucks as well. Because you hear from a lot of people like, man, you know, feed trees are great for finding deer, but it's not great for, like, killing mature bucks. And I've got guests I've had on the show that kind of prove that concept wrong, that they do kill mature bucks in upper echelon mature bucks. One of our guys who's been on the podcast a bunch, uh, Jonathan Moreland from Arkansas, he's mm-hmm. killed 180 something inch deer on a feed tree early season with his longbow on camera. You can go check it on YouTube right now. It's a pretty awesome video. Um, and he's killed other, you know, hoping young quality bucks off feed trees, all mature deer. And we've had other guests in the past as well. The thing about South Carolina is South Carolina is not actually known for giant deer. So your mature buck might be 105 inches. Okay. You know, you're not t- necessarily talking about like 140, 150 class inch whitetail, even though there are found there, they're just not very plentiful. Right. And it was fascinating about how he learned from one of his, it really was his mentor, Sonny, about how to scout for these feed trees. And as a young man met Scotty back in the eighties or met Sonny back in the eighties, um, who in, at that time was in his late fifties, uh, now I believe he's in his eighties right now. And he was able to show Rick how to go about finding these feed trees in a very short period of time, finding what trees are the best based on the sign left there and how to go about hunting them. And he told a very impactful thing that I think he told uh, Rick that he mentioned in the episode is, you know, don't shoot this deer when he's at 30 or 40 yards, wait until he gets 15 yards from him, kill him because he's coming to where you're positioned at because typically he tries to climb the, the, the feed tree itself or get very close to it and just how impactful that was for him in a time period when they had this huge hurricane come through in the eighties that knocked down a bunch of trees. Uh, it made it extremely hard to hunt uh, food plots and stuff like that. And just this very short, subtle tip of how to go about hunting feed trees completely changed Rick's perspective. And he's killed a absolute ton of deer with a bow. And that's directly affected us because it kind of changed my perspective. Like we've interviewed against some other really high quality feed tree hunters, but the way he was able to go about having that conversation and really getting to the weeds on it, I think impacted a ton of people, not just myself and Andrew, but a ton of the listeners as well. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're getting such awesome feedback from a guest like that. Yeah. And then, man, he's fired up too. 
Yeah, he, he's the kind of guy. Uh, if I, if I, you know, he'd probably be a fun guy to go to one of his sermons and, and yeah. listen to him talk. Because yeah. yeah, he brings some energy, and we had messages about that. Like, man, I love his energy. I'm like, yeah. dude, that's what you get, man. Yeah, yeah, dude is, uh, dude is fired up about it. And he's excited. One thing I liked about him, and one thing I like about a lot of our guests, or really all of our guests, they're all willing to share, mm-hmm. you know, bits and pieces of what's helped them be successful to help others who don't have the success become more successful and be become more confident and have more fun in the woods because. If you're having success, you know, getting on deer, killing deer, even observations of deer, you know, this for some guys, it might just getting the observation of seeing a buck. Maybe they haven't seen a mature buck in four years. Just having that opportunity, you know, could be a success for somebody. Mm-hmm. It makes it more fun while you're out there. Yeah. I mean, you know, I always say this, like, I, I love going to the woods and spending time in the woods, but like, I, I'm trying to go out there and try to become successful and trying to find whether I'm just trying to kill a doe or I'm trying to kill a mature buck, whatever it is. And that's much more fun when you're able to kind of put the pieces together and you're finding the sign, you're sitting up on the sign and you're actually having that opportunity come past you, whether or not you execute it, you know, that's, that's on you, yeah. but at least you had the opportunity to yeah. see that and, and have that, uh, that shot opportunity. So what you're saying is, uh, exactly how I feel about this past weekend, <laughs> but by the time this one airs, I know it's going to be some time and, and I've talked about it. Pro, uh, well, wouldn't really talk about it that much on the podcast by the time this one airs, but Kind of what Jacob just said is the experience I had this past weekend in Maryland. I, I had some really cool encounters early one morning with, with a couple of different does and, and just, you know, they just kind of skirted me on the outskirts. There were corn and all that stuff. And then, like I said, Saturday night, you know, with everything going on, just with the bucks coming in and my encounter that I had, I was in the right spot in the right situation and didn't really do anything wrong. Just hit that ground scent and as soon as he busted up, you know, came in a little bit open cover, there he was. And man, that sit would have sucked if I didn't see a single deer. You know what I mean? I mean but that one buck that came through, a real nice, good buck, he made that trip worth it and and allow me to hopefully get back there later this month. And, you know, Jacob, that's really great that you say, you know, there's certain guests that, you know, bring that energy and, and are willing to share certain information. I mean, that makes, obviously, the listeners learn and, and grow. And the one aspect I to kind of talk about, you've already mentioned it, is having that listener success. And I like when you post that stuff because there are things that other people could learn and grow from these people. And these are individuals that you may, you don't have on the show. It's not their listener success stories. So that's really cool to see that you guys do that because not only can we listen to a certain guest and learn and grow, but then also uh, get a chance to read some of these listener success stories, which is, you know, really cool because they're the ones out there putting the, you know, what they're listening to and the knowledge together and and be successful. Yeah. And dude, I'll I'll say this is a quick uh, segment. Uh, we had a listener success story, uh, a guy come up to us, uh, he's a younger kid. I think he's 21, 22 years old. Uh, his name's, uh, Tracy Brook and he's from Alabama. He actually, we met him at a trade show, came by at a trade show, talked to us. And he had an unbelievable story where he didn't come from like a hunting family. Um, you know, nobody in his family hunted. He got interested in hunting through his employer, um, that he was working with. I think he still works with today. And his employer told him, if you work with me, you know, throughout this summer and this fall, I'll take you out and let you get your first year this fall in my hunting club. And he's able to do that. It was back in 2020. He was able to go out and, and kill his first year. It was a, a, a button buck, um, spike buck. Cool. And um, the next year, going to the 2021 season, didn't know anything about the show. And he was like, man, I'm going to try to go out and get permission. Like he was watching a bunch of YouTube videos of guys hunting kind of urban properties. He was trying to get permission to hunt places and really didn't get a lot of permission properties. And the ones that he did, he just didn't have the confidence of hunting and really didn't get any opportunities. And he learned about the show the following season going to January of 2022, learned about the show, started listening to the show, started applying the show, 
bought his first bow ever, never grew up bow hunting, never grew up shooting a bow, bought his first bow ever, started hunting public land, and he hunted six different pieces of public land in Alabama. He killed a total of 10 deer uh, during uh, you know the season, killed eight with his bow, two with his rifle, uh, was one buck away. You get three bucks in Alabama. He was one buck away from actually shooting his his full limit of three bucks uh, and filling all three tags and just couldn't recover the last buck. Shot it with a bow, couldn't recover it. But he killed 10 deer his very first year after applying all this stuff. And what he's told us and the impactful part of it, and this is what kind of gets me fired about doing the podcast and even shows like this where even I can come on and, you know, we can kind of talk a lot about this is he was able to pull information out from different guests about, you know, habitat diversity and, and hunting transition edges and going out there. And he failed a lot of bow season early in the season. He said it took him 30 sits. He could hunt a lot with his yeah. work schedule. Took 30 sits to figure out how the deer were using the areas. And then after that, he could go in. He's like, nearly every time I went in, I had a shot opportunity at a deer. Wow. And he killed 10. He missed 13 with a bow on top of that. So it, it's just crazy how much opportunity that he was able to get. And again, stories like that get me so excited because he killed two really nice bucks, dude. And the yeah. third buck he said was bigger than the other two. And I'm like, that is awesome. Yeah. And now he's getting a couple of his buddies into hunting uh, just because of that success. And he's able to take them out there as well. Dude, that is fantastic to hear. I, I love hearing that. And I've asked Bo this question, and I want to ask you this one. And this, again, this is more so of like a personal thing, and I think listeners will get a lot out of it as well. You've been doing it five you know, plus years, like you said, six coming up and over 500 episodes, some, some great things, listening to some unbelievable hunters. And we kind of talked a little bit about it earlier, and I, I talked about it. You know, when do you think, and you've been applying things for you, right? Like you said, you've been learning and growing and, and applying different tactics and strategies. You know, do you feel like you've come into Jacob's own with your own strategy? You might do a little bit here and there to test something out or try something different, but you know, like I think, you know, I've heard Bo say this a bunch of times where, you know, obviously being mobile and doing all this stuff and, you know, and he was just like, man, when it comes to this spot at home, I know how to hunt this. Like, why am I trying something totally different, not being you know successful when he just does bow? right? When he does what, what's the tried and true, you know, do you feel like you went through that phase and, and do you feel like now you're, you're at Jacob's own, I guess you could kind of say as far as your, your strategy, your mindset, all that different things. I would, uh, yes. And I would call it more confidence in what I do. And now I have a very specific way I go about hunting. Um, and that's really kind of formulated over the last few years of putting more pieces together and actually, like we mentioned earlier, asking why, but also going out there and testing it. And when you're having that success, why, why was I successful on this hunt? Whether it was an observation or I, or I killed a deer um, and putting those pieces together. And, and that's tremendously helped over the last few years and, and built more confidence in myself that, you know, when we travel and go to different places, I have, you know, if I have a few days to hunt, I feel confident if we're in the specific habitat type that I really like, which we can talk about in this episode. Um, I, I feel like I can get opportunities at a buck, whether it's just an observation, whether it's a shot opportunity. I feel like I get myself in the position if I have a few days to hunt. Um, and that's really kind of taken back to, you know, really applying a lot more that, you know, was discussed in the show and figuring out what works best for me. So one thing I, like I just mentioned is finding the habitat that I really like to hunt, which for me, uh, I, I'll hunt a bunch of different habitats, you know, from, you know, anywhere in the Midwest, the Southeast, potentially going to get to the Northeast the next year or two. Um, what I feel very confident hunting habitat wise is rolling Hills, if not a little bit more steeper terrain um, mixed timber, both hardwoods and pines with clear cuts with timber cuts. Uh, I feel very confident hunting that kind of habitat and getting on deer. I've also had success hunting big river bottoms and, and killing deer that way, killing bucks that way. Um, 
had some some luck. Well, I've hunted Iowa now twice, and I've had luck, of course, late season hunting that kind of ag. Uh, I've hunted ag in other areas at different points of the season, had some success there as well. But definitely my bread and butter is like the areas where you have a lot more timber cuts um, and kind of that rolling hill topography uh, and really focusing on the thermal aspect in those kind of areas and how that can play such a factor for you. I always, the thing that's the most, um, where I had like the least confidence is super flat land, whether it's ag or big <laughs> room bomb where it's super flat and there's not a lot of habitat diversity that you can see on a map. That is where I'm like, God, dude, this is going to be rough. Like, cause at that point it's so much more, it's always boots on the ground, but so much more boots on the ground when you can't find stuff on a map to kind of go in it and really spot check. You have to burn so many more miles in those areas. And like the big river bottom stuff I've been hunting the last couple of years, um, like in Arkansas, it's been like that. Like you can look at a map and you're like, I might kind of have an idea what this looks like, but when you get on the ground, it may look completely different than what you thought it was. And you have to cover 10, 15, 20 miles in order, you know, over a couple of days of, in order to figure out like where the deer at during that time of the season, you're there and then figure out how you're going to go about hunting that. Um, but yeah, like I, I, that's one reason why I can relate with a lot of you guys up in PA mm-hmm. with that kind of rolling hills, some steeper train mixed timber with the clear cuts. I'm like, I love that. And again, that's one reason why we talked about potentially coming to PA at some point, uh, just applying like what we do in the Southeast up there. And I think it would relate really well because the conversations I've had with guys like Bo, it, there's a lot of similarities there. You know, yeah, you're, you know, a long ways away from where we're at, you know, 12 plus hours away, but it seems like it hunts very, very similar to how we do it down here. Yeah. I, where you're hunting, man, I consider that still the big woods, you know, some of the things and you know, some of the videos that you guys are putting out, like the one that you and Andrew, Andrew had that really cool success uh, hunt last I think you guys aired it last year. I, if, if I could, mm-hmm. uh, if I'm speaking correctly and, and all that stuff. And it was really cool to see what you guys were doing. And you were just saying about the wind and thermals, that's still the aspect that, you know, these guys that are hunting PA big woods, mountains, and don't matter where, I guess you could kind of say, obviously I'm saying PA being located here, that it takes a little bit to, to figure those things out. I know it sounds basic of understanding, but actually getting in there and like we're, you alluded uh, a lot of to early alluded to earlier about your access, right? Like how your winds and thermals play a huge dividend and yeah, man, it could really either make or break it, your hunt. Oh man. Yeah. And then also something I've learned in that kind of habitat and I haven't necessarily seen this a whole bunch in the flatland I've hunted, especially like big river bottoms, but especially in hill country or more mountainous country that like that thermal plays such a, such a role for getting bucks on their feet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had a hunt in Arkansas a couple of years ago, hunting some mountains and a uh, big elevation change, probably similar to some of the stuff that you guys have in parts of PA where, you know, you're talking, you know, a couple thousand feet of elevation change um, or, you know, anywhere between 800 and, you know, 1500 feet of elevation change. And on those light and variable condition days where you don't have a lot of wind speed, how much like that thermal switch, especially like with a falling thermal in the afternoon, how much of a factor that is for getting a buck on his feet in those conditions. Uh, I had a hunt uh, there a couple of years ago. It was, uh, it was not necessarily light and variable. I think we had probably a three mile an hour wind. And I was hunting a big ridge system on this mountain that was kind of running north to south. And access was like halfway up that ridge system. So you didn't have to go up, you know, eight, 900 feet in elevation. You had to go up a few hundred feet in elevation from access point, especially if you're hunting up or down. Mm-hmm. But in that situation, finding an area where there was a ton of, a, a ton of buck sign scrapes and rubs real close to the access road that you could drive in on, which is like a little two track, like a, just a logging road you could drive back in on. Um, and finding all that sign and where it was coming off the top of that big ridge system. And, uh, in that area, they had done a lot of select cutting where they didn't do a full clear cut where like all the trees were cut out. 
they came through and they did a, a slut cut or, or as Andrew said, like a high grade cut Okay, where they were leaving a lot of these big oaks, you know, as these seed trees and they're kind of limiting a lot of the uh, competition around them. So real high stem count, um, you know, the kind of stuff that, you know, at that point season in uh, late October, all the leaves were pretty much falling off the tree at that point. Um, so you could see through these saplings, you could walk through them, but if you got elevated, you couldn't really shoot down into that stuff. Um, and if found a spot where I backtracked a lot of that buck sign going back up that ridge, just following rubs and scrapes and just some subtle trails going up the ridge. And I could look on the maps, especially using slope angle shading and see, could see there's like a subtle bench up there. Like there's looks like a little rock outcropping coming off the side of the mountain, uh, probably 150 feet from the top. And I was coming in on a, on a East facing slope. And the thing is it was an afternoon hunt at like two 30 in the afternoon. It didn't get dark there until like six 30, seven o'clock almost. Um, at two 30, when that sun went over the backside of that Ridge and the wind was kind of coming out the Northwest you know, or North, it was so calm right there. The second the sun went over that Ridge at two 30, there was already a falling thermal and probably within 30 to 40 minutes of that falling thermal, I could hear deer getting up probably 80 to hundred yards above me, kind of up along that bench. Um, and you could hear them start walking around and feeding, popping acorns. Wow. Um, unfortunately I, I wasn't, quite close enough to where they were moving from. <laughs> so they kind of hang up there and they were kind of feeding around. You could hear them walk around and popping acorns. Um, but I was just slightly too far out of range in order to get an opportunity at those deer. Um, but it's like those kind of things play such a factor when you start paying attention to the thermals. And like I did an episode with Bo talking about thermals and how much that's played a factor for us after interviewing some super high quality guests on those topics and what we've taken away from it and actually gone out and apply in seeing how much that plays a factor for buck movement in those times, especially when the winds are not very high mm -hmm. in the wind speeds. Um, and it's just played out so well for us. And that's one of those things that I really try to pay attention to, especially early in the season, um, you know, find those North facing slopes, those cooler areas uh, that you're going to have a, a falling thermal much earlier in the day, in the evening, they potentially get a buck on his feet a lot more kind of moving around as he's transitioning to feeding or potentially going to go check some more doe bedding areas. Yeah electrify escape and expand with pwr nothing will hold you back from finding adventure on your own terms forge your own path to places others can't reach by car by foot or using analog equipment electrify your adventure with pwr's unique e-powered adventure tools that are just as fun to ride as they are practical escape the ordinary methods of enjoying the outdoors that take you to the same old spots it seems everyone ends up Expand your playground, push beyond your old limitations, and find a new comfort zone. Check out the brand new Rome scooter that comes equipped with 4-inch wide heavily treaded tires for maximum grip over loose and aggressive terrain. The 24-inch front wheel diameter makes easy work of rolling over roots, rocks, and other low obstacles in your path. Use code ANTLERUP750 for $750 off or ANTLERUP25 to save 25% off the site excluding the Rome. So check out ridepwr.com and prepare for your next adventure. I actually, it, this would be now two years ago. It was the first, first week into the season that Saturday. And my initial plan to hunt back in Northeast Pennsylvania was this bottom that I have, have had success hunting multiple years, hunting up there in, in a different area and just the way the wind was, it it was going to be tough to access it. It wasn't in, in the best. It's a north-facing slope, and like what you were just saying, and the thermals do, like you said, if, depending on how what what's happening, they will drop pretty pretty early. 
And it just didn't seem right that early. It's one of my quote unquote better spots, I guess you could kind of say. And went hunted the the other kind of it would be the more of the eastern side a little bit just to play to win and and do it a little bit of an observation sit and maybe whack a doe type of ordeal. And as soon as I was leaving, I got in my truck. It was dark, you know, headlamp was on. It was dark out, and I had a cell camera down down below on a mock scrape and boom right at i don't know i mean hunting light was done by 25 minutes so he was you know he was well past that but he was up on his feet or obviously was a really good eight pointer and one that i would shoot every day of the week uh back at home and but it that early in the year like you just said and it just things that things set up perfectly for that buck and i've looked at like why he where the direction he he was coming from and deer usually do not come from that direction and it just wind was a little bit more in his favor uh all that type of stuff and i said to my dad even if i would have quote unquote went in there i wouldn't have seen him because he would have smelled me and and just it would have been game over before it started so it was kind of like a it was an interesting thing for me to learn that because how now we maneuver around that mountain a little bit is it's changed a lot for he, my dad and I, my dad has hunted that area for 30 plus years longer than that, than I've been alive. So it's pretty interesting to see and how much more success, especially he's had uh, over the last couple of years with applying some of these uh, strategies. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, we even have guests that will ride in that, not only are they guests the podcast are already really successful, but they still listen mm-hmm. and you know, they'll message me or send me a text message or something like that. Like, man, this guy you just had on, like something clicked for me. Like I, you know, he's got my wheels turning, thinking about something else. And to me, that's really exciting as well. Even when you interview someone who's really successful, but they're not just stuck in their ways. They're constantly trying to learn. Mm-hmm. And some of the best deer hunters I've ever talked to or had the chance to interview are constantly trying to learn. They're not just a hundred percent. Like this is all I do. Like if I can figure out that one other slight thing that maybe gives me a slight more edge or something else to pay attention to, they'll kind of focus on it and even, you know, try to replicate some of that in addition to what they're already having success with. And that's super fascinating. So to me, one thing about these shows that really shows me, uh, you know, a lot of value for like a listener is no matter your experience level, there's always potentially something. There might just be 1% of a conversation that you can take away and maybe makes that light bulb go off for you. But when it does, it gives you the opportunity to be able to go out there and potentially apply something that you didn't mm-hmm. think about or do something you haven't thought about previously before and test that with something that you're already doing, having success with and seeing if it adds even more value to your hunting style and helps you even become more successful. So I think that's a really big part as well. And to me, that's really exciting, especially with some of these podcasts is there's always this, the subtlest you know, bit of information you can always take away to make you kind of think about something a little bit differently. So maybe when you get in that situation, I mean, I've, I mean, I've heard about this before, you know, one of these shows, maybe trying to let me do this instead of that, you know, based on what I've done uh, or what I've listened to and seeing how that directly applies for me. Yeah. So here's a, here's a question for you. What do you think are like, what do you think is like the top factor of getting buck up on their feet in that deer movement? Do you think it's weather? It depends on time of the year. Uh, I've seen early, like early season, like Andrew's had some really good hunts. I was able to join him a specific year down in Georgia, but him, our buddy, Michael Pike hunted early season in 102 degree weather and had some of the best movement they've ever seen. Uh, Mature bucks, big bucks moving, you know, very close getting shot opportunities, bucks just out of range, a little bit too thick in areas and not really playing a factor. Uh, Like the heat wasn't as much of a factor. Like bucks are moving two 30 in the afternoon, early season, early September. Mm -hmm. Um, I think weather, I think 
definitely, if you looked at the deer study, so I'll kind of bring back to deer studies and I, I kind of have some qualms with some of these different deer studies and how they pull data, these GPS collar studies. But uh, Mississippi State University uh, had a report on this that uh, the biggest factor for whether or not just deer in general were being killed was whether or not it was a Saturday. Okay. okay? If it was Saturday and the most deer were going to get killed. And of course, we could all agree with that, you know, most people had the, t- the day to be off to go hunt because uh, they were checking it with weather patterns and moon and all that kind of stuff. But I think you can get a lot more in the details and nitty gritty with this, especially when it comes to like additional hunting pressure. Uh, because I've interviewed guys that talked about, you know, they like to hunt on a rising temperature day when the temperature is actually going up for a couple of factors. Number one, most guys aren't going to spend time in the woods if the temperature is rising. If the temperature is falling, guys will get in the woods. Mm-hmm. So when the temperature is rising, it's going to be a little bit less pressure. But also one of these guys, Clips and Denny, he's also from Arkansas, he talks about when you have that weird temperature swing, whether it's going up in temperature or down in temperature, the bucks kind of shift bedding a little bit. You know, it was going up in temperature. He might try to move back to a slightly more shady area, a little more cooler, a little more wind, uh, you know, a little more breeze opportunity for him to just kind of stay a little cooler. He may get down a little subtle draw, you know, close to some water, something like that, that he may do differently, which is going to get him on his feet and give you shot opportunities if you're hunting when that rising temperature is happening. Same thing on the, on the falling temperature, he may shift bedding a little bit. And of course, during the rut, you know, may make them a little more frisky, but I think the temperature thing, everybody feels more confident if you're hunting a day where you get, you know, 20 degree temperature drop, you know, that morning or yeah. that the evening before and you're going out there, you're like, Oh man, it's going to be perfect. But also I've hunted days like that, you know, during the rut where it's like, there's a lack of movement. Um, in our deer down here in, in Alabama specifically, if we get one of those really crazy temperature drops, which our temperature doesn't get nearly as cold as it does where you guys are at. But if we get those days where it's getting down in the, the low twenties, upper teens, um, and it might get up to 40 something degrees a day or 35 degrees. Those deer do not want to move until that sun is way up. Like mm-hmm. you're not going to have a lot of deer moving super early. Like you're going to see deer moving 11 o'clock noon, one o'clock, two o'clock. And that's going to be kind of your movement times. And if you're not in the woods and you're only hunting to nine to 10 o'clock in the morning, you're not going to see any deer that day. Yep. Um, so I think that's a, another huge factor, but for me, I mean, just like most guys, you know, if, if I have a cold front coming in, you know, I, I'm a guy, I sweat a whole bunch. Uh, it just makes me feel more comfortable <laughs> going to the woods. Um, but also one thing that we've learned a lot recently is when you have a shift in wind direction. So say like in our area of the country, we, we get a, a decent amount of Northwest uh, winds, but when you have like this Southeast breeze that we'll have for like four or five days and all of a sudden it shifts 180 degrees and starts coming out of the Northwest, Something about that wind shift shifts movement. And for that first day or so of that wind shift, seems like there's going to be deer on their feet, reshifting to different bedding locations. If it's the rut, bucks are going to check doe bedding areas slightly different that day, which gives you a better opportunity than when it's been the exact same wind direction for the last seven days. Um, it, there's something about that, that 180 degree wind switch that seems to get bucks on their feet and gives you more opportunities when you go in the woods. Um, also, dude, I love hunting in the rain. Uh, we've talked love about it. this a whole bunch on our show. But like, especially during the rut or pre-rut, if you can just suck it up now, if it's lightning and thunderstorms, that's slightly different. But if it's one of those, you know, days where you might have some downpours and it's going to be showering throughout the day, whether you're hunting with, you know, archery equipment, muzzleloader, rifle, it doesn't matter. If if you can, you know, get you some decent rain gear that's durable, it's not going to rip on you when you're going through some cover and you can slip your way into some spots, you can have some awesome hunts those days. It's just miserable when you're on the stand or in the saddle that, you know, you're getting pelted by rain. Yeah. You get rain gear on, but like, dude, this is kind of sucks. But for whatever reason, those conditions, it seems like to get, it gets bucks on their feet specifically, especially where we're at in the Southeast. Yeah. Like that's a huge factor that, you know, we've kind of seen with a lot of the different deer studies 
that when it starts raining, those deer are on their feet, they're kind of using it to their advantage and really covering some ground. Yeah. I love that, dude. I, that's what I encountered too. I mean, I sucked it up. It was thundering and lightning and hunkered down. And as soon as it, you know, it was raining really well for a long time. And once that rain started lighting up a little bit, it was just the wind blowing the the water basically off the leaves is when I had that encounter with that buck, which was kind of cool. And I, I set up over a scrape, just came from that wrong direction. Like I said earlier, but it was, it's looking at how it was the last two days, high nineties, uh, that day on Saturday, it was 85, but still felt like 92. And like you said, deer were still moving. You know, it, it, it's not, nothing was changing. It's just a matter of finding them. And, you know, like what you were saying earlier, you're like finding things that you like to hunt. That's what I did. I was looking at the map and like, this reminds me a little bit more of home. I'm going to go here. And obviously I fell right into, to, uh, some really good sign and, and, you know, it brought me home basically. And I felt confident, right. That's what you're just saying, being confident and stuff like that. So, you know, you, you were ta- just talking about the rut, Jacob, and, you know, when it comes to preparing for that rut time frame. So like, for example, where, where are you going to be this upcoming year during, uh, let's just say just to be more universal, I guess you could kind of say not being your specific rut in Alabama, where, what's your time frame for no, November or October 31st through November 16th? Like, where are you going to be during this time frame? So this is gonna be really interesting for yourself and a lot of listeners. Um, Alabama, based off a absolute ton of research that the state's done over the last 15, 20 years has five distinct different rut times based off the region of the state that you're in. Um, I don't even typically in November, I may hunt Alabama a little bit, but I'm traveling to States that actually have a November rut. There's a few areas in Alabama that that do have that mid November, almost kind of like a later November rut. Okay. But a lot of stuff we hunt in Alabama, like you're not even getting, that, like you might get some pre-rut activity in November, but it's really not even getting heated up until the second week of December going through January, depending on where you're at. And I, when I'm saying five different distinct ruts, I'm not talking about like a secondary rut or anything like that. They've done fetal studies where they've killed does, you know, late in the season going into, you know, February, March, the state has and done fetal measurements on when does in specific areas of the state are being bred uh, and, and getting an average to it. And Alabama or, or uh, DNR has a really good map online that kind of showcase the different regions of the state based off the different rut maps. And it, it's fascinating because if I was a guy in Alabama, I, w- I didn't travel out of state. You could literally hunt rutting deer or pre-rutting deer from October 31st all the way through January 28th or so. Wow. Um, it, but just by moving in different parts of the state. Now, kind of go back to your question, late October, early November time period, I'm going to be in Arkansas uh, okay. during that period of time. You know, they have a, a November rut. Uh, we've had some very good hunts over their last few years. Um, and we'll kind of capitalize, hopefully capitalize there. We've got quite some time to hunt in Arkansas before we kind of come back to Alabama. And then when we come back to Alabama, we're going to be hunting kind of that pre-rut time period, which I've had guys we've had on the podcast really have a ton of success hunting scrapes, you know, around Thanksgiving uh, time period Mm -hmm. where having bucks checking scrapes, especially you talked about like what we discussed earlier with your deer right after a front hits. If you can be in the woods, like if it stops raining at 4am and you can be in the woods sitting over a really good community scrape. Uh, you know, by daylight, you've got a chance to potentially have a buck come back in there and work that scrape. And we've had uh, one guy on the podcast. Uh, he's been a co-host a little bit uh, on one episode in the past. Uh, he's killed, I think it's four deer in the last three years on scrapes on a specific piece of Alabama. Uh, and a lot of these deer he's killing at like 15 yards or less because of how thick the cover is. 
and he's had tremendous success doing that. So, um, but really, you know, just kind of based off where we live, I like to kind of travel to other states during that time of year, just because you know, down here, it's just a feed tree pattern at that time. You know, mm-hmm. bucks aren't even really doing pre-rut. They're really not sparring or anything at that point in the season. Um, so in our season is very long here. We hunt from October, generally middle October it's season this year, will open October 14th for us. And it goes to February 10th. So we'll hunt here for, you know, a week or so hunting feed trees. And then when that pattern kind of shifts a little bit to different food sources, uh, we'll start bouncing to some different States. And then when it starts getting to pre-rut in Alabama, we'll come back to Alabama hunt here kind of through, uh, really January we'll hunt Mississippi kind of late January or late uh, December this year for a rut hunt as well. Uh, but we're able to kind of, you know, dissect different parts of the state and really kind of capitalize on it. So that's one thing I love about living yeah. down here in the deep South is we can capitalize on other States ruts. Like I come up to PA and it does not affect me one bit yeah. back home. I don't miss yep. anything yep. Uh, other than if you try and kill a deer on a feed tree. Yeah. Um, so th- that is a, a huge advantage with where we're at, but we've got, we'll be hunting Tennessee this year, Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, and Arkansas okay. uh, this season. So, um, so that, that brings up a great, a great segue for, for me, Jacob, for you, because, you know, when, when you look at Arkansas, right. And, and you're planning this hunt and this is that rut for them. And you're planning on what's your, your, I guess, how do you prepare yourself with a game plan mentally, your checklist, your strategy, you know, how are you going up with that gate coming up with that game plan to, to attack this? Like you said, you've had success there in the past. So what are some of these things? Because I, I mean, obviously, yeah, find the does, all that type of stuff, but what's some nitty gritty things have you been able to, you know, when it comes to developing this game plan that you think has helped you be successful or put, or at least help lead to success? Uh, number one, dude, I, I love doing this when you hunt out state is you don't, I'm the kind of guy, I don't want to go to the place that everybody talks about. Okay. okay. Um, you know, there, there's some play, every state's like this, every state's like this when it comes to public land, there are specific pieces that a lot of people know about. And for good reason, like they kill some really big deer, but typically those areas have the most hunting pressure. So if you kind of take the numbers in consideration of based off how many hunters are hunting that area and you look at what's called a man day, you know, if you get five <laughs> guys on say like a, a lease uh, hunting on a Saturday, that'd be five man days for that one day. Okay. Cause everybody's kind of doing their own thing. But you're talking about some of these pieces of public land that, yeah, they kill giant deer, but there's, you know, 10 times or 20 times the amount of hunters in those places. If you look at the actual ratio of your opportunity, it's going to be probably lower than the average, you know, than some of these other parcels that maybe aren't as known about uh, or discussed about. Uh, so I like to kind of look at areas that aren't well known for maybe producing a lot of mature bucks. But one reason why that is, it just doesn't get a lot of hunting pressure. Um, and that comes into doing a lot of research, talking to a lot of different people. Um, you know, like I got a lot of context for Arkansas, uh, much context for a bunch of other States as well. And kind of talking about, you know, what's an area that looks good for me on the map that again, stuff I like to hunt. Um, but maybe I don't see it a whole bunch as in like on social media, you know, you can go to any of these Facebook groups, you know, every state has a publicly in hunting group for yep. that state. Some States have multiple Alabama's got a couple, uh, Georgia's got a couple, Arkansas's got a couple. They all have a bunch of them. Uh, Illinois, same thing. Um, and you can just start looking up like names of management areas in those groups. Okay. And a lot of people were willing to post stuff, uh, you know, about where they killed at and all this kind of stuff. Um, and you can kind of see where a lot of attention is getting drawn. After you do that, one thing that I love to do is if I'm interested in an area, I typically try to find the game warden or the, you know, conservation officer and or the biologist that covers that either piece of public land or that region, the state and pick their brain on, you know, deer numbers, you know, uh, hunting pressure numbers, uh, success rates, all that kind of stuff. 
some states are better than others when it comes to tracking like success rates, but they can, a lot of times they can at least tell you what, what's the hunting pressure typically like in those areas. Um, you know, there's areas I, I think of, um, like Tennessee, for example, I've got a pretty good relationship to one of the game wars that covers, you know, this region of the state. And he always tells me, he's like, dude, if you come here and hunt October until like the first week of November, you're not going to see a lot of guys. But if you start coming out here mid November, late November, that's when all the locals are out hunting. And there's a reason why is because you're getting a lot more into the rut that period of time. Right. Uh, and they kill big deer that time. But if you can hunt during that pre rut time period, you could potentially have a lot of success and then not have a ton of hunting pressure as well. In addition to, you know, when you're out there. So I try to take all that in perspective. Uh, and then also looking at access, you know, if it's, if it's an area that's like, you know, a lot of peace public land we have in Alabama is extremely roaded up. It has a ton of road systems, uh, some are drivable, some are, have gates on them. You have to walk past them and you can't use e-bikes in Alabama on um, public land. So that really kind of limits, uh, eliminates a lot of pressure, but you go to state like Arkansas or Missouri or Georgia, where they allow e-bikes. I think Tennessee is the same way. If they allow e-bikes, those gated roads don't mean anything. Yeah. I mean, you just imagine that, check that off the list. You know, if there's guys with e-bikes, they can fly two miles down that road that you'd have to walk down if you didn't have an e-bike. So that takes a lot into consideration. So trying to find the areas that, you know, that's less of an option, especially in a state like Arkansas, something I pay attention to, uh, less road access, and also looking for other creative access, whether it's boat access, whether you got to hike in a super long ways and there's not a lot of good parking areas. All that kind of comes into a factor for me when I'm looking at a piece to potentially hunt. And maybe I go to a piece that's maybe not as well known for big bucks, you know, that 150, 160 plus inch deer, but I can go to an area that I know confidently that, I can probably find mature bucks there. He might be 110 inches or he might be a 140. I don't know until I get there. Right. Uh, but typically when you go to those areas, you're going to have a lot less hunting pressure. And that's typically what I'm looking for is where can I go where there's a lot less hunting pressure? I'm getting away from the crowds because I'm going to a piece of public land that's just not well known about or maybe not as highly discussed about. And other than a few locals, you don't have a lot of hunting pressure on those specific properties. How much does the access play a role for you during that time frame? Because obviously, you know, especially more, let's like lean towards more of that rut time frame. It's, you know, when, when bucks are, could be a little bit more stupid and, and catch them a little bit. You know, how important is that access route for you during that time? Uh, extremely important. And I've yeah. learned this the hard way over the last few years. <laughs> There's a big takeaway I've learned from the podcast and, and, uh, and mishaps and situations where, you know, act to me, access is so critical, especially if you're hunting public land or dude, if you're hunting some lease property, you got, you know, a lease or a hunting club, you a bunch of buddies in it or a private farm you got access to, especially if it's not like thousands of acres, you can burn some stuff up really quickly, educate a ton of deer. If you don't have a really good access and an exit route, now public land I'm a little bit different because some of these spots I may hunt once and never come back to the whole year. So I don't really care about the access all that much. I just want to be able to get in super clean or if there's certain areas that I'm like, I know I'm going to hunt here at least four or five times this season, like in this general area, I try to figure out like what's the best exit or exit route coming out of those locations. Entrance routes, you really got to look at a couple things. Like what is everybody else doing? And doing what everybody else is doing isn't necessarily a bad thing as long as you can J-hook back into a spot. Because there's a there was a hunt last year, and I've given this example a little bit on our show, uh, where a piece of public land in Alabama, uh, you come up and you park at this gate and they had clear cut a lot of the timber right next to the road, uh, kind of on this piece of public. And when you park at the gate, it's like fairly open. It's uh, what we ha- call a broom sedge. It's this tall grass. It's real yellow, real golden yellow gets, you know, four or five feet tall, uh, gets pretty dense. And like, you could have a deer staying 15 yards from me. If you're on the ground, you oh, would never no. see that deer. Yep. You'd hear him, but you're not going to see him. And this place was a lot like that. 
And typically in this area, when you park at this gate and you walk in and you can walk in for a very long ways on this, this roadway that kind of goes back into this property. Um, and there's a bunch of different clear cuts all throughout this road system. You'd find these big buck tracks, not far from the truck. Like you really wouldn't like you go, you know, a hundred yards past the truck down this roadbed, and you'd see big tracks crossing right there. There was clear cut. And you're like, dude, how do I hunt this? And there was a couple trees, a couple big pines that you get like 300 yards from the truck. Okay. Not super far from the truck. Um, and kind of watch that axis point and watch that clear cut. And this is now, this is specifically a, a rifle hunt. This is an archery. This is a rifle hunt specifically here in this example. And we went to this spot and we had, I think three of our buddies meet us there. So it was me, Andrew, and then three buddies. So we had five guys hunting from this one axis point. Everybody other than me and Andrew hiked back in three, three quarters of a mile, mile back, got set up. And me and Andrew were like, dude, we're going to hunt right over here. Like, really? Like you could, you could shine your headlamp, get a bright headlamp. You can almost see the trees from the truck. And I'm like, yeah, I'm like, I think there's an opportunity here to catch a buck slipping on this backside where everybody's walking past. Daylight hit, no, no movement. Buddy start Texas, hey, get deer up moving. And I, and I look up and I've got a, a really nice three and a half year old eight point walking right at me from the truck. And at the time I see it, he's like 80 yards from me. Okay. And there's nowhere he came from. It's just that grass and there's nothing on the other side of the road. Like he was somewhere in that general vicinity of the vehicles and he's walking right towards me. And, uh, it was a really nice deer. If I hadn't interviewed a couple other podcast guests, like literally a couple weeks previously, I probably would have shot the deer, but I just knew there's bigger bucks out there. And I'm like, we're just going to pass this deer. He walks up 30, 40 yards from me. I'm filming him, send it to the buddies. And of course they're like, man, why don't you, why don't I hear a gunshot? I'm like, well, there's, uh, there's a lot bigger deer I've seen here earlier in the season. That I know in this general area. So we're gonna give him a pass. And he kind of did his own thing, kind of meandered off. And again, the where he walked came from and where he left to, if you were hunting in a traditional, you know, stand location, you would have never seen this deer. Never would have seen this deer. Probably a couple hours later, it's probably 11, 11 o'clock, almost noon. And we were going to sit to at least two o'clock that day. Uh, it's kind of early point of the rut. Two of my buddies, they had to walk back to their trucks. And when they're walking back, I mean, they're literally 120 yards from me. Like I, I'm watching them walking through. They're looking at me like, man, that's the stand you're hunting. And they're texting me. I'm like, yeah, dude. They get back to their truck and I can see the trucks. They start their truck up and they're just kind of talking and stuff. And I didn't care because like the deer are used to it. A buck gets up, not 30 yards from the trucks. There was like a couple trees right there and some tall grass. He gets up from a bed and starts going back across some private land next to us, which is pretty open. Um, and I text the guys, it wasn't a shooter, but I was texting the guys like, hey guys, you just had a buck 35 yards from you guys, bedded there, let you walk within 10 yards of them down the road bed and get to your trucks. And he slipped up the backside. Y'all never knew he was there. And, uh, it kind of opened my eyes a perspective about access that you don't always have to go in as far as possible, especially if a lot of other guys are doing that specifically, I see that in areas where you have a lot of road beds, a lot of logging roads. Mm-hmm. A lot of guys are like, man, I'll walk a mile and a half back and I may only get 200 yards off the, the access point, like the, the logging trail, of the road bed. Uh, but a lot of guys, if they had the opportunity, they're going to walk past a ton of deer and a ton of sign that, you know, if you're a little more open-minded, you can find now on the flip side, other piece of public land we've hunted uh, that's maybe less accessible when yep. you have less access roads. To me, that's where you have a lot more guys are like, I'm going to punch in there. I'm going to get in there. I'm going to get way off an access road because there's not a lot of them. And to me, that's where, you know, you can kind of get away from some people. You can kind of push in maybe a little bit further than everybody else does. And I've had success there as well. Like we had killed that hunt you were talking about with Andrew. We killed three bucks in there in that spot within four days. Um, and I, two of the deer I shot were two and a half miles in on that piece of public way to pack them out. Um, and you could have gone a lot further than that if you wanted, but a lot of the hunting pressure because of that, a lot of guys were staying a little bit close to the truck is really rugged and they just didn't want to punch in there that far. And it right. really paid off. 
So there's some places it can really hurt you by like how far you're going in access wise. If it's really roaded up because you could walk from run, one road system. If you walk a mile, you could walk yourself right back into more pressure, you know, hunting around another yep. roadbed yep. Uh, versus an area that's a lot less roaded up. You can maybe potentially get away from a lot more people and hunt more subtle terrain features that most people would overlook on the maps. Um, also boat access has been big for us, uh, trying to use boat access in a bunch of different places, especially when we hunt river bottoms, you know, some of these places you can hike into some, you can't. And you know, when you're in a state like Alabama, where like duck hunting is not as big, like Arkansas, like you go to Arkansas, you use a boat. Everybody and their mother has a couple boats. Everybody's <laughs> using boats, over there, especially when you start getting into that, that, that area of the state that's known for duck hunting. Um, but and those are areas that you could get away from people by walking. If you use a boat, great. Don't hunt next to the boat. I still hike in a quarter mile to a different spot that's unaccessible by a boat. Right. And you can get away from a lot of pressure. Um, so that's another really big factor as well for us and kind of keying on some of that. Uh, but my thing that one thing I've been paying attention to a lot more recently really happened last year is finding those overlooked spots. You hear guys like Dan and Fulton talking about this kind of dating the fat chick, the spot that everybody looks at and they're like, dude, why would you sit right there? And I had another hunt in this very similar location I was just talking about with those trucks parked there. I was in a very similar location, close to that area. Had another three and a half year old seven point come by me right last light. And I'm not 110 yards off the side of the road. Uh, my buddies, they were hunting the other side. When they came to walk back, I had to stay in the tree for a little bit longer because this buck was just lingering feet on oaks underneath my tree. That buck could see their headlights as they were walking out of the woods from the other side of the road. And they're talking, you know, I could hear him playing his day uh, when they were walking back. And he stood there rock solid until they started the trucks off. And when he stopped hearing the gravel pop from their trucks, that's when he continued back to feed. It. Jeez. Um, so that's really kind of changed my perspective in those, in those really roaded up areas. A lot of times you can have a ton of success close to access points. As long as it's overlooked, if it's next to one of those areas, people are constantly thinking about driving past or walking past. You can have a lot of success in those areas. Yeah. So let me ask you, I, I want this, I want Jacob Myers is uh, like your th- top three rut hunting strategies. Oh, dude. Uh, or, or like, one, or, or like you're, you're like, these are the three things that I have to abide by. Okay. Yeah. So number one is like fairly clean access. You know, if you're walking back and hunting, like, you know, doe bedding area, it's got some really good train features and you're blowing out all the deer on the way in and they're kind of out lingering feeding in the dark and you're going on a morning hunt. You're, you're going to shoot yourself in the foot. Yeah. You might have a buck come by that was, you know, half a mile away, but when he gets in there and doesn't smell any other deer, he's probably not going to kind of punch into where you're trying to set up on. Um, so that's a really big thing. So even during the rut, taking access to consideration, like how can I get into a spot like back door an area that the deer aren't at right now, but I'm going to catch them coming back into later is huge. Um, specifically around a lot of clear cuts for us, finding what's called an SMZ streamside management zone, which is where down where we're at, they can't cut all the way down to the Creek bottoms. They have to leave a buffer of timber around those Creek bottoms. Okay. Um, Typically, you're going to find a lot of deer feeding in those clear cuts, especially as we get towards our rut down here. They're going to feed in the clear cuts on a lot of that, you know, woody brows and some green brows um, and, and softer brows that we still may have come the rut down here because it doesn't get quite as cold to kill everything off. So you can use those ditches and those creep bombs to kind of get your weight up into position where you can kind of work closer up to one of those clear cuts where those bucks are going to kind of cut across like a, uh, like a very short drainage that kind of comes up out of those clear cuts. Um, that can work extremely well. But also one thing I really love for hunting during the rut is compounding train features. Like this is probably my most important thing, no matter where I look at, I want to find an area that has two, three, four, five habitat edges all coming together in one spot. Yeah. And if you can find that, 
you don't even need to scout it. If you can go in there, like I'll go into those areas in the dark on a morning hunt and feel extremely confident. I'm going to have an opportunity, whether I have my bow in my hand or have a gun or a muzzle, or it doesn't matter by getting an opportunity at a deer. If I can find those edges where everything comes together, um, you know, in timber company in timber country or, you know, the big woods, as y'all call it, but I've never heard that term. until I started listening to y'all, some of y'all's podcasts <laughs> from up in the Northeast. I'm like, dude, everything down here is timber. We don't have open hag. It's all yeah, timber. Yeah. Um, but, uh, when you have a bunch of different, like you can get in a corner, sometimes it's on the property line. Sometimes you can have it out in the public land where you have two or three different age clear cuts all growing in one area. And then you have a hardwood drainage coming up and kind of splitting them. That can be, tr- that can be fin- fantastic. Especially right. if you have like a clear cut down by us, it's like, you know, one of them's maybe a year to two years old. It's really short brows. You know, it's, it's the kind of area you could walk out in that, you know, come the rut and I could see 60, 80 yards around me. Um, and that'd be a spot they're going to feed at the does will feed at, especially like in the, in the evenings. Um, and then, you know, next to it, you might have another clear cut. That's, you know, they replant pines down here and those pines might be, you know, it might be like a six year old clear cut. Those pines are maybe seven, eight feet tall, really thick, you know, uh, heavy brows, uh, really thick briars, an area that these does are really kind of tucked back up to in yep. bed. And so will the bucks and the does will try to lose the bucks and that kind of stuff. And then next to that, you might have some older timber. You might have some pines that have been planted. They're there for 10, 12 years. They're a little open underneath, but they still have some thick draws running through them. And a buck will kind of bounce between all those in that one area where he can kind of hit all three types and kind of cross that one specific location in those thermal. A lot of times it's in a thermal hub. You know, yeah. you'll find all that habitat edge. Um, that's huge. That's like my number one go-to. Like if I'm going to go to an area during the rut, I'm looking for the most habitat diversity possible in an area and if I don't have it, if it's true, like a big wood setting, like where we shot those three bucks last year in Alabama, there's no habitat edges, at least that you see on aerial maps. When you get boots on the ground, you can find, you know, where some, you know, trees died, you know, died and kind of you're a little bit thick underneath uh, where maybe you have some sapling growth next to some bigger timber. But in those areas, there's a lot more big woods and you don't have a ton of habitat diversity. I'm looking for a terrain feature, like really good terrain features, like great saddles. Uh, you know, I, I like to hunt, especially if you find an area with like, multiple finger ridges coming off. Yep. So you have like maybe one ridge system coming off, like say a mountain or just a long ridge. And it's got three or four points coming off of it. Sitting at the top of those three or four points could be absolute dynamite. Okay. Especially during the rut where, you know, you got does bedding all over that ridge system, all over the secondary little points dropping off and the buck, if he's coming up there, he's going to cross at that point. At some point, he's going to cross where they all come together on that main ridge system at some point in the day a lot of times you're going to find a big community scrape at those spots as well. So it's a great place to put a trail camera. And those are fantastic. Like during the rut, I'm looking at what is the most, I call it, I call it like linear path of travel. Yes. What is like the, the longest path of travel that a buck could take that would bring him by a specific point on the map. And a lot of times it's these long ridges where they all come together is that spot. If he's going to cover a ton of distance that day and hopefully with the conditions are right, maybe he will. I can put myself in that position where you have, all these linear paths of travel coming to you from one spot and you can find a lot of this on the map. You know, that's one reason why I love hunting hill country is because I can look at a topo map and I can see where these spots are automatically. And also a lot of guys kind of overlook that. Like a lot of guys, you know, want to sit on the edge of a clear cut, which is great. I've had a ton of success killing nice bucks on clear cuts, especially during gun season. But if you get back in that timber and you can find all these long points coming together, like, dude, that is such a good spot. Instead of getting over the edge and getting down on the bottom where you have swirling winds, you can have a ton of success in those areas. And then also, dude, I've, I've started to love saddles the last couple of years. Uh, killed two of those bucks in a saddle last year. Um, one was potentially the oldest buck I've ever killed. Uh, had two guys, two different taxidermists and a biologist look at it and thought the deer was probably 
you know, once they get over five years old, it's hard to just, uh, it's hard to yeah. guesstimate how old they are unless you send the jaw off. But they're like, dude, he was showing me one of my tax reasons. I like, do. This is a seven year old jawbone that I took off a deer that was confirmed seven and a half years old. He's like, look at your wear on your deer compared to that. And it was like half the wear line. Wow. Uh, more of that seven year old deer and killed him in a saddle, pushing a doe through that saddle. And the thing is, not all saddles are created Maybe. equal. Yep. If you're in a place with a ton of, it's, it's really hill country. You don't have these long ridge systems. A small saddle is not going to help you because why does he need to cross through this saddle when there's another saddle a hundred yards down from you, or there's another low spot he can cross at saddles really play a factor for us. When you have these very long ridge systems that maybe run for a couple miles and there's only one or two saddles on that whole ridge system. And then on top of that, finding a compounding feature with that saddle where it's a saddle next to a thermal hub or next to a couple other secondary ridge points that come off paralleling that saddle. Um, th- that's where you really start upping your odds for opportunities for bucks crossing through than just some random saddle in the woods. Cause we'll talk about saddles in the episodes and we'll have somebody message us, send us a screenshot on on X. Like, man, what you think about the saddle? I'm like, not, not to hurt your feelings, but dude, that's not a great saddle. Yeah. And you'll ask why I might do this. Another saddle 150 yards from there. And there's another one on the other side of the screen. The, the less of those terrain features you have, the better those terrain features are in the long run for finding actual buck movement through them. Again, yeah. if they're plentiful everywhere, it's going to be hard to pick which one they're going to use. And there's no guarantee they're going to use one over the other versus if there's only one or two in say like 2000 acres. There's a lot higher odds of success that those bucks are going to be using it, but you got to take consideration. If there's only one or two of them, there's a good chance that there's anybody else yeah. out there using, you know, these, these uh, digital maps they're probably going to find those spots as well. So it's a double-edged sword for you. If you're in the market for finding a new trail camera, I highly encourage you to look no further than Exodus. Exodus has two main options to choose from as far as cameras go. A budget-friendly option that doesn't compromise quality. The Exodus rival is the camera for you. Simplicity meets functionality in this easy-to-use, feature-rich cell camera. The rival offers crystal clear, photo quality, easy setup and use with complete remote management through the app anywhere in the world. Two already are set up in Northeastern PA for me and they're working flawlessly. And if you're looking for an all-encompassing cell camera, seriously look no further than the Render. It's their flagship camera. It stood the test of time for thousands of hunters across the country. I have one deployed here locally where I live and another one I'm saving for back in Northeastern PA. Again, zero issues. And I'll tell you what, Exodus stands by their five-year warranty for accidents or for theft. Top of the line customer service. So see for yourself why so many made the switch to Exodus and experience the Exodus difference. Use code AU to get 15% off your first camera today. Kind of last question to wrap up the the rut talk and everything like that. Jacob, when you prepare for that out-of-state hunt or really any out-of-state hunt, it could be rut time, it could not be rut time, you, you mentally have to be ready. I, I just, you know, that's the one aspect that, that I just love about hunting is taking my sports side of what I've learned playing sports and coaching sports, the mental side of things. Like I just, something that I just love. And we go through certain seasons and you have your ups, your downs, and you can beat yourself up, but it's a matter of, are you able to get back on the horse and be positive and make that next shot? Are you able to push through the, and persevere through the hard times and all that stuff. And it's really easy right now to sit back and be like, Oh man, I'm so pumped for this Arkansas hunt. Right. But maybe when that time comes, the weather isn't doing what 
you would love for it to do, but you're still going, right? So mentally, how do you can stay in the game and kind of work through those demons, I guess you could kind of say? Great example. I'm going to go back to the Arkansas trip from last year. So I went to Arkansas twice last year. I went once in the muzzleloader season and once in the rifle season when it opened up. <clears throat> Their muzzleloader season typically happens mid-October, runs for two weeks, and then their gun season will open uh, typically the second uh, week of November and okay. it'll run for a few, it'll run for like a week or so. Uh, went during the October hunt, got there a couple days before the muzzleloader hunt, bow hunted, hunted a few spots, and what I was trying to find is I was trying to find that buck sign early on in October because they run in November, so you're going to find those you know a lot of pre. Um, rut activity in that mid to late October time period, you're going to find a ton of scrapes, scrapes. typically and, and rubs. And I went in and covered like 18 miles in two or three days and found zero buck sign. And some, I'm talking like you look on the map, like this place looks dynamite, you know, for big river bob hunting. <laughs> yeah. And I was finding a bunch of does. Like, dude, I saw, I think on, I was there for, oh man, maybe five days. I think I saw 70 deer actually from the stand while hunting. Wow. All but two were does. Okay. So two little bucks is what I saw in that hunt. And I'm like, where are these mature bucks? So I know they're here. This is the first time I've really hunted this property. And I'm like, I know they're here. I I, I know they've got to be in some of these different spots. I was checking different thick, thickets and everything. And, and one thing I did not take in consideration is to try to focus less on the rubs and scrapes and try to find more of the tracks because the area I was in, it held tracks really well, but I was constantly looking up through the woods, trying to find licking branches, seeing scrapes, seeing rubs. And they just, for whatever reason, were not laying down that sign at that point. It had been very hot, very dry up to that point, And it was just a, a lackluster amount of sign. But how I kind of stayed in the game was everything I'm doing now is going to pay off at some point. It might be tomorrow. It might be the next time I come here, but it's going to pay off at some point. So keep covering ground. Don't just find an area and keep sitting on it. If you don't have the sign that tells you that there's a buck here, that that's what you're hunting for, especially a mature buck. Um, and I used that and I found a lot of, I found a bunch of areas. I'm like, dude, had some success, shot, shot a younger buck in a doe on that hunt. But I found some areas. I'm like, I had one more buck tag in my pocket. Like, if I come back in November and they're laying down the sign they should, I know where all these doe groups are at now. Yep. And I can key in on that. And that's exactly what I did. And I saw, I think it was five shooters in the first two days of the hunt uh, and shot one of the bucks on the third day of the hunt. Excellent. Um, and, uh, and funny thing, I shot it inside bow range. I'm like, I should have had the bow with me, dude. <laughs> um, so, but that, that was a huge aspect. And so, what I always tell somebody, it's like, if you go on an out-of-state hunt or whether you're just hunting, you know, a different piece of public land or, you know, maybe get access and private where you're at, don't justify how you hunt it based off what you're seeing right now. Mm -hmm. If your cameras don't, re and it also don't rely solely on trail cameras. Yep. Trail cameras only see such a small fraction of what's happening around there. And like, we've interviewed guys like our good buddy, Shane Parker, who's going to be hunting with us in Georgia, which will, that hunt will be over by the time this episode comes out. He runs like 289 trail cameras on public land. Okay, across the state of Alabama. He runs most trail cameras. I mean, by knows. I can't imagine what his battery bill is. And one thing he's learned, because he'll put three trail cameras on one tree pointing different directions around like a community scrape to see how bucks are using it. And so often he'll have a buck circle below that scrape where if your camera's facing the scrape, you would never see him on camera. Wow. Like there, there's no activity, but he's circling 30, 40 yards below the scrape and his other camera's picking it up. And that really changed his perspective about don't just rely on what a trail camera is telling you in the area. You really have to have boots on the ground and really find that sign. And to me, that's one way you can be a lot more confident in what you're doing, because if you're not finding the sign now, plan for what you're going to be doing. You know, it, it's, it's tough if a guy takes off four or five days from work and he has only say 
four or five, six, seven days to hunt. You right. know, if you had the weekends and everything, it makes it tough because you're probably not going to come back. But like I've had hunts like that too, where it's extremely tough. But you have to realize if it's not happening where you're at, you have to keep moving. Yeah. Don't sit there and hope it's going to happen. You have to make it happen and cover the most ground possible. And if you're going to have to bump deer. Like you're at some point, you're going to bump a bucket. But like, okay, maybe I'm not going to kill this buck, but I see how he's using it. And then I can go try to find something similar on the maps and be like, okay, I bumped this buck off, say, you know, the river bombs, you know, Oxbow Lake. You know, it's better at the mm-hmm. tip of Oxbow. Where's another Oxbow I can go to that sets up pretty similar based off the maps and actually hunt mm-hmm. it? Maybe I don't have to go scout. I'm going to go in there and actually set a stand uh, or get my saddle the morning I'm hunting and seeing what happens. And a lot of times that really pays off. So that's what I've had a lot of success with in those short time periods, which is, you know, staying mental in the game. Even if you're bumping bucks and you're bumping deer, great. Okay, cool. You now know what they're using in that area. And then based off what it looks like on the map, whether it's a train feature, a habitat edge, whatever they're bait, they're betting on that you bump them off, try to look for that similar thing on the map in a different area and actually go in there and hunt it. Don't scout, just go and hunt it. Throw a morning sit out. If it doesn't pay off, get down, start scouting around and see if you can find the sign to confirm that, hey, deer are using this area just like they were using the other area that I bumped them out of. Right. Preach, man. That's awesome. So, like, to do all this, you know, what's your what's your gear setup right now? It's been a while since we've talked. A lot of cool things have come out since, you know, episode 37, man. And, and this is the one thing I, I always joke and say, you know, we we're like long lost cousins with that. You know, so what what's going on with with your setup right now? How what are, what is your dialed in setup. It's so funny. I never feel it's so ever dialed in. Um, <laughs> also, I've kind of simplified a lot of stuff, like this, not buying a ton of gear. Yep. Uh, I, I have bought some actually. I've got, I've got a lot, but maybe not as much. I think the last time we were on the podcast, I think I had like eight or nine different saddles. Yeah, I've now yeah. got it down to one, Okay. Um, which is, which is pretty nice. Um, but, uh, and then I've got one set of six I use and everything else. So right now I'm using a, a, a tethered uh, Phantom elite saddle. Um, and really enjoyed that. Uh, it's been, it's been a pretty slick system, just kind of how close it is to you when you're actually, uh, how tight it can get to you when you're walking the woods, so you don't have anything yep. hanging off you. Um, and I'm still using, I think the same six I was using back when, uh, you and me talked last on episode like 36, which is, uh, uh, lone wolf custom gear, full link sticks. Um, I, I would love to get a set of minis from any company. I don't care. I'll buy whatever. But I just got so used to using those full length sticks. I can get so high with them. Plus, I can use an aider to get up even higher. And I don't really mind carrying the extra length. Um, and I've still been using those and then been using a bunch of different platforms. Uh, I've been using a, a Tether Predator XL for the last probably almost three or two seasons now, uh, going into my third season with an XL. And I personally, as a saddle hunter, I really like having the bigger platform. Okay. And the reason why I kind of get, you know, give people an idea. If you're trying to get into saddle hunting or looking at saddle hunting, the bigger platform, you can actually freestand on it. As long as you don't have like size 13 inch or 13 yep. uh, boots or something like that. I'm, I'm a 10 and a half uh, size boot. So I can freestand on a, on an XL platform and I can stand on just like a lock, like a lock on. So if a deer gets on my weak side or gets, you know, directly behind me at my six o'clock position, I can freestand. I can pull myself up on the platform and turn around and don't even have to lean into the tether, which is really, really nice. Um, and then also, uh, I still will implement, uh, different, uh, lock on stands at different points of season, like early season. I'll kind of go back and forth. Like if I'm covering a ton of ground, like when we go to Georgia here in a little bit, I'm going to use I'm going to have a, both a, a lock on with me and a saddle. Okay. I like using the saddle specifically in areas that like, I have no idea if I'm even going to get in a tree and I'm going to cover as much ground as possible when I'm boots on the ground. So I don't want to have a stain on my back, you know, potentially hitting stuff. I want the most streamlined system possible. 
but like lock-ons, I've got a bunch of different ones. Uh, I've got a out on a limb hush stand. I've got a lone wolf custom gear point, uh, 1.0 stand. I've got a elevate. Um, I cannot remember what they name that stand. They're, they're real small one. Yeah. It's kind of similar to like a 0.5 uh, lone wolf custom gear. And I'll implement some of those throughout the season based off where I'm hunting at. Um, especially if I'm getting an area is like real shrubby and yep. I don't want to be facing into that like real shrubby tree. I'll use like one of those little lock-ons going in that position, just pack it in with me, uh, with the sticks. So, um, and then just packs, I mean, like using a bunch of different packs. I've got a, uh, uh, a Kafaru woodsman pack with their tactical, uh, 24 inch frame. Okay. Works real, real well for packing your gear in and also getting a deer out all on the same trip. Uh, especially if you're using like the saddle kit, super easy, uh, staying, it's not bad either. Um, and then also using on different points of season, uh, the first light transfer pack as well. Okay. And kind of implementing that as well It still packs your gear fine. You can still pack a deer out. Okay. with it. it's not bad. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've really kind of simplified from like buying a whole bunch of different things. The only thing I made change this year, and we've talked about it on our podcast, but I haven't implemented it quite yet, is one sticking, especially down here later in the season. We have a lot of pine trees, big, longly pines. And I've I've actually left the saddle and, and sticks and the um, lock-ons at the house and took a climber to certain spots because I if say it's a gun hunt, not bow hunting at that time of year, kind of late January. And I know I need to climb like legitimately 40 plus feet up a tree in order to be able to see down to a clear cut. Yep. Um, and I had one last year. I had to tie two or two years ago. I had to tie two 60, uh, 30 foot pull up ropes together to get up the tree. I had just a climber <laughs> three times up and four times coming down. Um, and I measured it off. It was 43 feet to the platform, which is Dang, scary high. That is scary like, high. S- scary high. I still didn't have another branch on that tree for another probably 15 Choo. feet up. Um, but again, Climb that high. I'm not worried about deer seeing me because he's going to be blinded by the sun if he looks up at me anyways. <laughs> um, but that's why I'm kind of looking at using the one stick is in that kind of situation where later in the season, you know, when I typically would maybe try to use a climber because I know I need a high climb extremely high post rut on a clear cut, trying to find a buck bed on that stuff with a rifle. Um, instead of packing in, you know, a 23 pound climber, um, I can pack in, you know, my one stick, stick and I can bring 50 foot of rope if I need it. Um, in my saddle and get up there and be probably a lot more secure to be a hundred percent honest than being in the climber. I feel a lot more secure in my saddle than I do in a climber, Me too. um, but still not be limited on how high I need to get in a tree to give the shot opportunities. Yeah, dude, that's awesome. Uh, you know, Jacob, again, I, I just want to say thanks for all that you do, uh, as, as in this, this podcast world, this, uh, putting content out there, knowledge, uh, you know, it, it's fantastic. Number one, number two, it's really extremely helpful. And, and I applaud you for, for what you've been doing and the success that you've been having. It's so awesome to see, uh, again, like I said earlier, from afar, from before I even had you on the podcast, it was just awesome to see the growth and what you've been doing and getting a chance to have you on the podcast. Now, the second time getting to meet you briefly at ATA two years ago, man, you're a humble individual. So awesome to talk to. Like we could continue on for hours and hours and hours and, uh, I can't get sick of you. So I, I, again, just want to say thank you for, for what you've done, what you're doing, uh, for taking the time to speak with me, man. And I will say this, I'm super happy that we had the chance to do this after that Alabama loss, man. Hey, you know, it is what it is, man. <laughs> I was guys, I could take a hill. I know. know. I'm an Alabama hey, fan, hey, but I could take it hell. Listen, it was, I'm a Penn God, State dude. fan. I'm used to it. I'm used to those hey, L's. You know what's bad? I've got, so when we go to this Georgia trip, not to 
make a long story short, but we go to this Georgia trip. One of our camera guys, he's a big Texas fan, and he was texting us before the game happened. He's like, Jake, I just want to let you know, if we win, you're not going to hear the end of it oh. on this hunt. I'm like, okay. <laughs> he, he, the second the game was ended, he's like, oh, just be prepared. Be ready. I'm, like, I'm going to have fun. I'm like, all right, cool. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited on a side note for college football uh, to see the playoff. Like, I, it's a weird world of what college sports is going into as far as these conferences, and I'm not really pumped about that. I'm 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 excited to see what a 12 team playoff will actually look like. Uh, I'm excited for that, but outside of that, I, I, man, I, it's it's tough to get. I, I, I'm I know maybe other people have different opinions. I'm, I'm for the kids to get paid because of just knowing how much money these, these universities really do make not only off of players, but other things. I think it's, it's interesting, but, uh, but man, it, I don't know, man, it's, it's, it, I used to love, 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 love college football. And I still do, but there's just something that doesn't seem right to me as of the last couple of years. I don't know what it is. No, I'll, I'll, this is my one thought on this. Can get totally saturated from whitetail hunting. Uh, one thing I like, it, it kind of bothers me a little bit, is this transfer portal thing. Yeah, that thing sucks. Where guys can just get up and leave and start playing. Um, is I don't know that that to me that's that's even. I've got more qualms with that than I even yeah. do about the, the players getting paid. Because um, yeah. I'm kind of like you. I know some guys are like, man, it takes a purity out of the game when, when they're getting paid. But my like, dude, whatever, man. Like. Yeah. You know, if it helps them perform better, great. But if it doesn't, you know, they're going to get cut from the team anyways, and those right. contracts are going to get cut. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, dude, the transfer portal is just crazy. Yeah. Like, just guys get up and leave and playing for all these different teams. And um, to me, that's that is like the most fascinating thing with everything kind of going on right now. Yeah, there's what that quarterback from Rice is on his fourth team in four years or something. Like, come on, bro. <laughs> but yeah. oh man. <sighs> Yeah, but Jacob, dude, I again, thank you. Where could people tune in? What day of the week is, is the episodes drop in and and uh, follow along with you guys for this upcoming season? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll say this. Uh, of course, the name of the podcast is The Southern Outdoorsman. I will say this. Even if you don't live in the Southeast, we actually have quite a few listeners in the Northeast and in the Midwest. You can still apply a lot of this stuff to where you're at. Uh, we've got actually a pretty big listenership in uh, Michigan, funny enough, that sees a lot of success from this. Um you can follow along with the podcast, of course, anywhere you listen to your, this podcast right now, yeah. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio. Also, we do a video version of the podcast, kind of like what we're doing here uh, on YouTube. Just search the Southern Outdoorsman on YouTube. Um, and, uh, yeah, dude, I mean, other than that, it's uh, it's exciting. We got a ton going on, a uh, ton of big hunts this year, doing a lot more filming content, video content. So really excited kind of put a lot of stuff out and actually showing listeners and viewers kind of, how to go about applying a lot of stuff actually in the field. Right. There's one thing about hearing it, but probably like a lot of listeners here, uh, you know, I'm a very visual learner and I he hear somebody talk about, but I'm trying to apply it to where I'm at. It's a lot easier when you actually can see yeah. some of these podcast guests talk about actually in the field, what they're doing. So we're trying to go on a few different hunts this year with a couple of our most popular guests, highlighting very specific things that they Sweet. do and kind of showcase it in a video format. So we're really excited about that this year. Awesome, man. Well, best of luck to you. And I just, again, thanks, man. And please go follow uh, Jacob and Andrew, what they got going on. It's fantastic stuff if you're already not doing so. So thanks again, everybody, for tuning in this week. We'll see you next week. Antler up. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Antler Up podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Please go check us out on our Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and Go Wild and at antlerupoutdoors.com. If you enjoyed this episode, go leave a review and subscribe for next week's episode. Until then, Antler up.
Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.